identity crisis. Identity crisis. You may have heard this term before, and it often describes those who suddenly feel lost and without purpose or direction in life. An identity crisis may be brought on for a variety of reasons, but it often occurs when a person loses that which gives him greatest meaning, purpose, and significance in life. For instance, you may witness a person who loses a job that they've been at for 30 plus years have an identity crisis. Who are they now that they no longer have this job which gave them meaning and purpose? You may also witness this from professional, professional athletes in our society. And when they retire from their sport, which they've dedicated their whole life to, who are they? Now that they are no longer an NFL, NBA, or MLB player, or an Olympic athlete, you may even witness an identity crisis occur to those who break up, who are in a long relationship, who have been dating for quite some time, and they now break up. And so who are they now that they are individuals that are no longer together? In each of these cases, an identity crisis happens when the thing that the person found most significance and purpose in is suddenly stripped away from them, and the effects that we witness can sometimes be absolutely devastating for a person. What we find our identity in will either make us or break us. If we find our greatest identity in the wrong thing, it will crush us. But if we find our identity in the right thing, it will give us fullness of life. And so as we consider our own identity here this morning, we must ask, what is it that each of us are looking for identity in? What is it that you find your greatest identity in? What is it that gives you great significance, worth, and purpose in life? As we come back to our text in Philippians 1, we find that Paul and Timothy find their greatest identity in Jesus Christ. They find their greatest significance and purpose in belonging to Jesus as his servants. And as a result of being in Christ, they are drawn together with other believers in relational union and purpose together. This is what we covered last week. So rather than place their identity in something that is merely temporary or something that is merely fleeting, Paul and Timothy have chosen to find their identity in the Christ who never changes and is eternal. And as a result, they have a firm foundation upon which they can rest in the midst of great troubles. In fact, even as our text will show us here this morning, we find that Paul's identity in Christ will empower him to have deep joy in the presence of suffering, total devotion in the face of death, and even selfless service in the midst of far better options. So if you haven't already, please turn with me to Philippians 1 as we see how the identity of Christ in Paul's life 
empowers him in these ways. As we come back to this text, we remember that Paul is awaiting trial in Rome. He's in prison as he writes this letter to the Philippians. And because he is in prison, he writes to inform the Philippians of his conditions. They want to know how Paul is doing. They're worried about him. They care deeply about Paul, and they might be distressed and anxious as he awaits his trial to see whether or not he lives or dies. But as Paul begins to explain his situation to the Philippians, it becomes apparent that he's holding up quite well, for his identity in Christ empowers him to have deep joy in the presence of suffering. It's here that Paul writes to his brothers and sisters that he wants them to know something important. I want you to know this, brothers and sisters. I want you to know that what has happened to me in being imprisoned is actually working to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ to others. This evil that has happened to me and is causing me suffering is actually being used for good. The spread of the good news of Jesus. This is what he wants his fellow believers to know. The gospel is spreading through the imperial guard, or what we might call the praetorian guard. These men would have been Caesar's elite soldiers, and they would have been stationed in Rome. There were about 9,000 of them stationed there, and Paul is saying, because he's imprisoned, it's now spreading through the elite guard. They're coming to know who Jesus is. Now, we may kind of wonder, like, how in the world did all 9,000 of them come to know the gospel through Paul? But as many commentators have noted, uh, these guards would rotate on watching Paul. They would rotate in watching Paul sometimes several times a day. And as a result, Paul would not waste any opportunity given with each of these guards, especially as he had kind of a captive audience, so to speak. They couldn't go anywhere. They had to watch him. So while Paul was being watched by these guards, he would then take this opportunity to share the gospel with them. He was in prison because of his belief in Jesus Christ. He's there because he's in Christ. He's there because of his belief in a crucified and risen Savior who died to save him from his sins and to save them from their sins against God. And so his being in prison allows him to share this with each captive guard with him. And so as a result, the gospel spreads from one guard to the next and to the next until it it, it penetrates all of them and they all have heard the gospel that Paul is proclaiming here. No doubt the guards also helped as they talked amongst each other about this weird prisoner who is there because he believes in some crucified rabbi named Jesus. Like, that's weird. That's odd. And yet, Paul rejoices because these guards who never had the opportunity to hear the gospel now do because Paul is in prison there in Rome. So rather than see his imprisonment as a terrible thing, as something to, you know, have self-loathing about, Paul sees it as an opportunity to rejoice. Jesus, who is 
everything to Paul is being proclaimed. Because this is what his life is about. He has cause to rejoice. But then he continues on. Not only this, not only is the gospel spreading to all the guard, but he tells us it's encouraging believers in Rome to be even more fearless in the proclamation of the word. By Paul take, stepping out and taking this hit, so to speak, and going to prison for his faith in Christ, he is inspiring countless believers around him to do the same. His boldness and confidence inspires them to speak the gospel all the more fervently and all the more passionately. So Paul's imprisonment, imprisonment fans the flames of the gospel in greater and brighter ways. So as Paul evaluates his situation in prison, and he sees how God is working in and through his sufferings, and how Jesus is being proclaimed and spread further and further, this is reason to rejoice. This is everything to Paul. Because Christ is his identity. He is everything. But as Paul speaks about how the gospel is advancing through the guard and through other believers, we then come to find that not everything is all good necessarily. Because there seems then to be two groups of believers that have risen up in this moment. There is a group that preaches Christ out of a love for Paul, but then there is another group that is preaching Christ out of rivalry and, and envy of Paul, as we read in our text. There is a group that preaches Christ out of jealousy of Paul and to hurt him and to cause him trouble in prison. They preach Christ with tainted and impure motives. They preach Christ with selfish desire to add to their own glory and to hurt Paul in his imprisonment. Now, I really wish we, we had more details than this. It, it's, it's curious, like, how are they doing that? Like, how does this work out that they're preaching Christ in such a way that they're hurting Paul? We're not given those details or how this rivalry began with these other believers. But what is clear to us is that it is possible to truly preach Christ with tainted and sinful motivations. We can serve God and preach Christ with, with a rivalry and an envy of others, even if they're believers. So we learn here that there's a type of service that seeks its own recognition, its own glory, to the detriment of others. And the reality is, as we think about this, we ourselves can fall into a similar trap as these believers do in Rome. So how do we know if we've fallen into a trap like some of these believers? Well, we may have fallen into this trap if we begin to see each other in our church as in competition with the praise and approval of man rather than seeing each other as teammates in our acts of service to God. We may have fallen into this trap if we become jealous, jaded, or bitter when we see other less deserving people around us being treated with greater significance and honor than ourselves. We may, may have fallen into this trap if we become envious of other churches in our surrounding area as they grow in their preaching of Christ and we begin to see these churches as competition rather than 
rejoicing that brothers and sisters are being added in Christ. So there is a type of service where we can serve with tainted, impure motives for our own self-glory and treat others around us as interference to my own glory and success as I serve Christ for these selfish reasons. So if, if we've fallen into this kind of trap, what do we do? When we see these impure motives rising up in our own hearts as we desire our own glory more than Christ, what do we do? Well, as God reveals these self-centered motives that rise up within us, we must first repent of them, recognize them for what it is, and pray for a changed heart in our acts of service to God and others. We continue to serve God, but we ask God, change my heart. Help me to serve for your glory and your honor. It's not about me, it's about you. And help me to die to myself in this way. Pray that God would change your heart's motivation so that you would truly want, above all, to see his name glorified and not your own. And if you're jealous, if you're jealous or envious over someone else based on their skills, service, or ability, and the attention that they're getting for glorifying God, seek to instead thank God for that believer. Rather than be jealous and envious of them, thank God that they're using that person to glorify God and then praise him for their use in advancing the gospel. Because that's exactly what Paul does here. The antidote to jealousy and insignificance is praise and thanksgiving to God for what truly matters. And in this way, the trivial things of the world that we, our hearts get so caught up on bounce off us as we supremely value the gospel. So even as we see these believers here in the text seek to undermine Paul with these personal attacks, we can't help but notice how they seem to bounce off him. Did you notice that as we read this text? These attacks, which were meant to be personal and, and hurtful to Paul, are inconsequential because Paul has taken his self out of the equation. His identity isn't found in himself. It's not about Paul. It's about Christ. He's in Jesus. And so Paul isn't stunned with despair or grief because it's not about his reputation. It's not about his honor. It's not about his glory at the end of the day. It's about Jesus Christ and making him look glorious. Jesus is all that matters to Paul here. So if we are like Paul in this way too, finding our identity in Christ, we can rejoice even in the midst of suffering or the trials we have with other believers. Because if Christ is winning, then only Satan is losing. And in this, we can rejoice together. So Paul's identity in Christ enables him to have deep joy even in the presence of suffering. But then we also find that his identity in Christ brings total devotion in the face of death. As Paul continues, he says, Yes, and I will continue to rejoice because I know, I know this will lead to my salvation through your prayers and help 
from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul continues to rejoice because he knows that this, this being everything that he's gone through up to this point in being imprisoned, is leading to his salvation or deliverance. And the salvation that Paul looks forward to may be physical salvation, but most, more likely it is the salvation and vindication that he will receive from God the Father. Everything that Paul is going through is preparing him for that day when he will receive final vindication and salvation from God. But as Paul mentions here, he won't get to that day on his own. For he mentions it will be through the Philippians' prayers for him and the Holy Spirit that will help Paul arrive on that final day of salvation. It will be their prayers and the Holy Spirit that enables Paul to reach that final day where he will see Christ face to face. And what we learn here is that our walk with Christ isn't an isolated event. Our walk with Christ is a community activity. And we see this in Paul's words here. He's depending on their prayers to help him reach that final day where he is fully sanctified and finds his salvation completely. He's depending on their prayers to have right attitudes about his circumstances and situations. It is their prayer that is bringing about his sanctification in Christ. And the same is true for us here this morning. We need the prayers of each other. If we are to be all that we are to be in Jesus, if we are going to reach that final day being conformed completely to the likeness of Christ, we must be praying for each other in this way. And we pray for each other. We uplift one another on a regular basis. So let me encourage you in this moment, if you're not praying for each other regularly, start to do so and start to do so in small ways. Pray for each other, maybe one family a week. Maybe that's too much, maybe one family a month. But build this habit because we need the prayers of each other. Your pastors need your prayers. We cannot stand on our own, but are reliant on the grace that is prayer. So we pray for one another, and we pray that the Holy Spirit would enable us and keep us and help us. For we will not be totally devoted to Christ apart from the help of one another and the Holy Spirit. So as we come to verse 20 then, after Paul states that it's through the prayers and, and the Holy Spirit that he will be finally vindicated at salvation, he makes absolutely clear to us here that Christ is again everything to him. That's basically what he tells us in verses 20 and 21. His intense expectation and hope is that when he sees Jesus again, that he will have nothing to be ashamed about in how he redeemed his use of time and efforts to make much of Christ. Instead, the way that he uses body and life will be to highly exalt and honor Christ in, the both, in both the life he now lives and the death he will eventually die. And so it's at this point where he's saying, Christ is everything to me, and that's what I'm living for, 
he then speaks the words we know and love. For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And this is a nutshell summary, basically, of what Paul's life has been all about. In one word, Christ, he describes everything that his life has been oriented towards. Paul's whole orientation in life, Christ. Paul's goal and purpose in life, Christ. Paul's greatest treasure and longing in life, Christ. Christ is what Paul strives toward with every fiber in his being. And as Christians, this is what we are called to as well. For to live is Christ means to make Jesus everything to us. It's to magnify his redeeming work on the cross for us. It's to glorify his name with all that we are. And it is what unites us together as believers. This is our goal, our purpose, and our mission in life. So we are to collectively obsess over Jesus, even as Paul does. For Christ is our identity, and we are to be totally devoted to him through everything. And so while we don't live for Christ perfectly, know that this is what each and every one of us here this morning is to strive for. For this is what it means to be a Christian. So everything that Paul lives for is Christ. But then there is that second half of the sentence, right? To live is Christ, and then what? To die is gain. How can Paul say to die is gain? How is dying gain? That is like a radically countercultural idea. And I think it's safe to say our culture and world does not think of death as gain. And yet here Paul is saying, and to die is gain. As Paul faces the real possibility of death, and he awaits his trial, he considers death as gain for at least two reasons. By dying for Christ, he sees it as an opportunity to show the precious and infinite worth of Jesus. By laying down his life for Jesus, he shows his immeasurable worth. Christ is not only worth living for, but dying for. And so death declares Jesus is everything. It's worth spending every ounce of your life on. And in this way, Paul would make much of Christ in his death and show his infinite value. Because you don't just lay down your life for a fairy tale. You don't lay down your life for a lie. You only lay down your life for that which you see as infinitely valuable and precious. And for Paul, this is Jesus Christ. He is willing to go to his death for Christ and so gain the opportunity to display his priceless worth to all around him. But then there is more significantly the second reason. Death is gain. Because in dying, Paul gains Christ. And this is the primary gain that Paul most likely has in his mind. 
For it's what Paul basically says a couple verses down. In death, Paul gets to be with Jesus, whom he's been living for this entire time. Paul gets to be with the one who died for him. Paul gets to be with the author of joy and life itself. And he gets to find fullness and completeness as he gains the treasure of his soul, Jesus Christ. So there is great gain in death for Paul as death acts as a portal to gain what he most wants in life, Jesus Christ. And he wants Jesus so badly that he sees death even in a positive light here. So there is great gain then in death for Paul. It shows the supremacy of Christ and he gains Jesus, the treasure of his soul. It would be this same belief that motivated many Christians after Paul in Rome then to willingly give up their life in following Jesus. To die is gain would be the shared belief of the martyrs who would be burned on crosses all across Rome. It would be through their sacrifice that the gospel would spread. In fact, there would be so many dead Christians for the sake of Christ that one early church father would write that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And so the death of the saints and this belief that they shared with Paul would display his immeasurable worth and also allow believers to gain Christ, the treasure of their souls. So as we look at Paul's life model here, so to speak, I, I wonder if we can honestly say with Paul to live is Christ and to die is gain. Can, can, can we really say that about ourselves? Because I think if we're honest with ourselves, there are times when it's hard to say this. Is it really to live for Christ all the time? And so if we're being honest with ourselves, and I mean if we're being really, 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 really honest with ourselves, I'm not sure that we would always say to live is Christ. Instead, I think we might say to live is something else. To live is something else that maybe our world lives for. Whether that's comfort, entertainment, pleasure. Whether that's fame, honor, recognition. Whether that's family, job, and occupation, security, approval of man, ease of life. To live is something else. And to die isn't gain, but a complete tragic loss and waste. Often I think how we view our own coming death will show how true our faith is and how badly we actually want Jesus. And so in these moments where we realize that to live isn't Christ and to die isn't gain, we must again, like Paul, turn to Christ and find our identity, our truest identity in Jesus above all. For it's only when we find our greatest identity in Christ that we will be made whole, that we will find completion. So Paul's identity with Christ then brings joy in the midst of suffering. It brings about total devotion to Jesus even in the face of death. 
And even as we move to this final point, it will be his identity in Christ that empowers him to have selfless service in the midst of better opportunity. So as Paul continues on here, he begins to explore the possibility of his living and his dying. Because the reality is, as he waits trial here, there's, there's a possibility he will really die. And so as he contemplates the two possibilities, life and death, he does so by weighing, really, the pros and the cons of each outcome. If Paul survives this trial and he's released, he says, great, this means I can continue to have fruitful labor for Jesus Christ. However, this leaves Paul feeling torn. Because if he keeps on living then, he has to postpone gaining Christ. And he says in verse 23, this is a far better option for him. I would rather be with Jesus, my greatest treasure. This is far better for me. But despite this being better for Paul, a better option for Paul, he nevertheless says, but it's better for me to postpone that and be here with you. And so Paul, in recognition of this, says, while I remain alive, I will remain alive in the flesh for your sake. And I'm going to postpone this eternal delight if it were up to me, so that you would be built up in the faith continually. And so Paul would choose selfless service, even if presented with a better option. And so after considering these two possibilities then, Paul is convinced as he thinks more and more about it and is persuaded he will indeed remain and continue on in life for the progress and joy of their faith. He's convinced of it. He's persuaded that he will stay and work towards that end. Now, how we know Paul is sure of this outcome, we don't know. But he's convinced that after he's thought about it, God is going to spare his life and he's going to work for the progress of their joy and faith so that they can boast in Jesus Christ all the more. And so just as Paul strives to do this for the church in Philippi, so our church strives to do the same. We exist, as Paul does, to see one another built up in the progress and joy of the faith. We, as a community of faith, work together to see the progress and joy of each other's faith increase in him alone. And so that's why your pastors are here. They desire to see your progress and deepened faith and joy in Christ. They want to see Christ become everything to you, even as Paul does for this church. And I also hope it's why you're here this morning as well, too to see not only yourself built up in joy and faith, but to see others whom Christ has united to built up in the joy and faith of Jesus Christ. So by God's grace, this is what we as a church will continue to strive towards as we work out our identity in Christ. May our identity in Christ truly bring about deep joy, no matter our circumstances, total devotion to Christ, even in the face of death, and selfless service to one another, even when there are better options. Let's go to the Lord now and pray that he would work towards this end. Father, we come before you.
and we desire to make much of Christ, even as Paul does. We desire to live for Christ and to die for Christ and make much of Christ with all of the life you've given to us. So help us, we pray, to deepen our identity in Jesus all the more. May we find our significance, our, our worth, our treasure to be Jesus and Jesus alone. May he shape all that we do and may he shape us till the day we die. We ask that we as a church would work towards this end together hand in hand and in love grow to be more like Jesus each and every day. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.